Let's pray together. Lord, it's good to sing and be reminded about the love of Jesus and all that he is for us, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Advocate, our Intercessor, the one who purchased us in the first place and will bring us all the way safely home. So we thank you that many in this room can say with Paul, The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And we just thank you for all the differences that makes in this life as well as for our eternity. And I pray for anyone who doesn't know Jesus this morning. Lord, they just have no hope until and unless they would turn to him for forgiveness of sins and to be restored to you. So, Lord, I pray that uh, your spirit would be working in the hearts of both those who know you, that we would hear your voice, and those who don't know you yet, that they would hear you summon them from death to life. Lord, we need you this morning. We cannot understand or be changed by your word unless you cause it to work effectually in our hearts. So we ask that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. In any given week, we might experience some kind of trial, which the dictionary defines as something that puts strength, patience, or faith to the test. Our text for today provides a perspective on trials that can make a difference in how we respond. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we already know from Scripture and our own experience that trials are an inevitable part of life in this fallen world. No one is exempt, but if we are believers, we can be encouraged by the reminders Peter gives us in these verses. So first of all, our trials are temporary. Trials last for a little while, or they are for a season. If you look at chapter 5, verse 10, Peter says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you. So both at the beginning of his letter and at the end, he reminds us they're just a short time. Now when we're in the middle of a trial, it feels like it'll never end. We might cry out, how long, O Lord, how long? 
And sometimes it lasts for a few days, sometimes for a few weeks, sometimes for a few months, and then it's finally over, and we thank God for bringing us through. But sometimes it's long-term, maybe years. But even if trials last the rest of our life, it is still only a little while compared to the endless ages of eternity. So I thought of Johnny Erickson Tata. This summer it will be 55 years that she has been a quadriplegic. That's a long time compared to an average lifetime. But compared to forever, it is very, very short. In Isaiah 54, God calls 70 years a brief moment. In James chapter 4, we are reminded that our whole life is just a vapor that appears for a little while. There's that phrase again, a little while, and then vanishes away. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul refers to the afflictions he's been enduring year after year as momentary. Even the world tries to encourage people going through a tough time by saying, this too shall pass. How much more encouraging that our God, who governs all things, including exactly how long our trials will last, tells us our trials are temporary. Second, our trials are necessary. You'll see the phrase, if necessary or if need be. So who decides if we should have a trial? Do we ever say, I think I really need a trial today? I didn't think so. What we usually say or at least think is, I don't need this right now. I don't need to deal with any more problems in my life. So do other people decide if we'll have a trial? Well, sometimes they have a role in our trials, to be sure. What about Satan? Is he part of this? He he can have a role too. But ultimately, it is God who determines that various trials are necessary for us. They are designed by his perfect wisdom because he knows we need them, even if we can't understand why we would need them. So David and Helen Siemens were missionaries in India. Their son Steve was born with a twisted club foot. And for a variety of reasons, it was a month before they could have a surgeon put his foot in a cast. So this is what the dad writes. Because that club foot got a month's head start, to straighten it out took several years and required three painful operations. I'll never forget the day when our surgeon called Helen and me in. He placed a bottle in my hands. It was all wrapped in cotton so it would be soft but firm. He said, I'm going to give you a tough job. If we're going to help this foot heal after the operation and keep it from reverting to the old twist, you're going to have to turn it back the opposite way. Every evening there were some traumatic minutes in our family. Helen had to hold Steve. He was just a toddler. And I had to take his foot and put it over that bottle and twist it as far back in the opposite direction as it was turning in the wrong direction. So just hard to imagine what that would be like. You can imagine Steve's response, his cries of pain. Sometimes when he'd plead with me to stop and I didn't, he would scream, Daddy, I hate you. My stomach would churn. I'd get sick of the whole business. 
But years later, when I saw him playing Little League Baseball, I said it was worth it. And when I see him walk with no noticeable limp, I say again, it was worth it. So could Steve, as a toddler, understand why such pain was necessary? The answer is, of course not. All he could understand was how much it hurt. But that's what he needed, whether he realized it at the time or not. And in a similar way, sometimes we might wonder, why would God allow such painful circumstances in our lives? Doesn't he love us? Well, By our faith, we trust that our Heavenly Father, who does all things well, knows that our trials are necessary. He decides. Third, our trials are distressing. You have been distressed or grieved or are in heaviness because of these various trials. Peter's not scolding believers for being distressed by their trials. He's not rebuking them, saying, what's wrong with you? That you're in heaviness because of what is happening in your life. He knows and God knows that trials are emotionally painful and hard to bear. Go to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, and verse 13 and 14. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he himself knows our frame, he is mindful that we are but dust. So we already know that trials are distressing. Nobody has to tell us that. We don't need a verse in First Peter to tell us that. But it's encouraging you to know that God knows that. And he has compassion on his people while they're going through difficult trials. Fourth, our trials are beneficial. Look at verse 7 back in First Peter chapter 1. So that, so here's a purpose, an outcome, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So trials prove and purify our faith One of the biggest questions we can ask is, how do I know if my faith is real? Because if we've read the book of James, we know James talks about a dead faith. And if we've read 1 Corinthians 15, we know Paul warns about believing in vain. And we might remember the parable Jesus tells about a temporary faith in Matthew 13. And remember what shows that it's only temporary, it's not real, genuine faith. He says, the one on whom seed was sown on rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but it is only temporary. And when affliction 
or persecution arises because of the word immediately he falls away. So here's affliction comes, persecution comes. It's like, I'm out of here. Well, that shows that it was just a temporary faith, not a real saving faith. So how do we know? Well, trials demonstrate the reality of our faith. When it's tested by fire and we pass the test, it proves our faith is genuine. Trials also purify our faith. This is from John Piper. In God's design, our distresses are like the fire that refines gold from its impurities. When gold is melted in the fire, the impurities float to the top and can be removed. When the refining fire is over, the gold is even more valuable. So it is with your faith in God. You have faith, you trust his promises, but there are impurities in it. There are elements of murmuring and pessimism, and there are tendencies to trust money and position and popularity alongside God, dirt mingled with the gold of faith. These impurities in our faith hinder our fullest experience of the goodness and greatness of God. So God designs to refine our faith with the fires of trial and distress. His aim is that our faith be made more pure and more genuine. That is, that it be more utterly dependent on him and not on things or other persons for our joy. So you get the picture? We're a mix. Our hearts are always mixed and divided and part of us is trusting in God and part of us is trusting in ourselves or in money or other people or whatever and trials have a way of refining us so we're more and more trusting in God alone for everything. There's an old hymn that says, the flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross, that's the impurities, to consume and thy gold to refine. You might remember Job, who definitely knows what it means to go through trials, says in Job 23.10, He knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So Job didn't know what God was doing, but he affirms God knows what he's doing, And the outcome of all this trial is someday I'm going to emerge from it all like gold. God's trying me. It's awful. I hate it. But the end product is I'm going to be brought forth as gold. So I saved an email from a while back from a brother in our church family. He said, as we look back on our tough days... I am thankful for God's kindness and graciousness that he chose to take us through that time. I would have a smaller view of him without that trial. Praise be to him. So there's all the pieces of that verse, isn't it? Here's, it's temporary, looking back at how God brought us through. So he has the benefit of hindsight. He can look backwards. It's over now. It was temporary. It's distressing. He calls it tough days, not fun days, not pleasant days. They were tough, but they were necessary and beneficial. He says, I know God better because of going through that trial. I have a bigger view of who he is. And he ends, 
praise be to him, which is one of the ways to take that last phrase of verse 7. So after this refining and testing process is over, our faith is found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we thank God for his grace in sustaining us through the trial. We praise him for his mercy in being with us and experiencing his presence in a deeper way. We honor God for his wisdom as we start to catch maybe a glimpse of some of the benefits he's designed. Maybe we'll only get a couple of those and the rest are not till heaven. But all things, including our trials, are for the glory of God. Romans 11.36 says, from him and through him and to him are all things. So from him are trials and through him are trials and to him are trials. To him be the glory forever. And a number of sincere Christians take that phrase to mean that the Lord commends us. So 1 Corinthians 4.5 would be one of the verses that would support that. It says, therefore, do not go passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. I wouldn't die on this hill, but here's, I still think if that's what Peter meant, it's still ultimately for the glory of God. If you think of Revelation 4, They're casting down their crowns before the throne. Which seems to be expressing, we don't deserve to wear these symbols of honor on our heads. All the honor ultimately belongs to you. You deserve the recognition and the honor, not us. Which I think simply is Psalm 115, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. So even if there's... Yes, the Lord commends us. Well done, good and faithful servant. Praise the Lord if he does. That's what we want. But any honor we get, we know who it, where it really belongs, right? The Lord deserves it all. Well, we've seen the trials are temporary and necessary and distressing and beneficial. There's one more reminder to notice in these verses, and that is that our trials do not have to cancel out our rejoicing. Look at the first phrase of verse 6. In this, you greatly rejoice. In what? In what are we greatly rejoicing? And I don't think he's talking about the trial. I think it's referring back to the blessings of salvation that he's just talked about in verses 3 through 5. That God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He has made us alive in Christ. He has brought us into his family. We have a glorious inheritance waiting for us in the future, namely enjoying God forever in heaven. That inheritance is being kept for us and we are being kept for that inheritance. That's something to rejoice in. No matter what's going on in your life, those are unchangeable realities that we can still find joy in even though For the moment, we're going through a trial. It's similar, I think, to Habakkuk or Habakkuk chapter 3, if you want to turn to that. Habakkuk chapter 
3. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. We're just going to push pause. That is a very distressing situation. The closest I could come up with would be the Russians invading Ukraine and taking away all the sources of food. Not only the massive wheat fields that Ukraine is famous for, it's called the breadbasket of Europe, but like commandeering all the grocery stores. So there's zero food anywhere. That's what Habakkuk is staring at. The Babylonians are coming. God told me they're coming. They're going to wipe out everything. Life as I now know it is over. There's nothing left. Verse 18 says, Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So he's not rejoicing in the fact that I don't have any food. He's rejoicing in God. He's rejoicing in God's salvation, that there's enough in God and his salvation to rejoice in, no matter if there's anything else or nothing else at all in my life that I could find to rejoice in. That God is enough. And of course, we need God's enabling grace to be able to rejoice in the middle of a distressing trial. But again, I think the focus is the issue. Not Don't focus in on the trial and think, I'm going to try to rejoice in that. No. Rejoice in God and who he is, what he's promised, the salvation he's provided by Christ. That's something you can rejoice in no matter what is going on. And part of getting there, part of the fight of faith is to develop an eternal perspective. To not just concentrate on the short-term trial, but to focus on long-term blessings. So go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, wasting away, our body's breaking down, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. How is this inner man being renewed day by day? And he says, for momentary, referring to years and years and years of persecution he's endured for Christ, Light, beatings, stonings, shipwreck. You read about it in 2 Corinthians 11. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. 
while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Or Romans 8, 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glories to be revealed to us. So, recent example of that kind of mindset recently was um, talked to a brother from our church family who now lives in another state. We had a phone call a couple weeks ago. Um, he lost his job in December, and he's had a couple new job opportunities look very promising, and then they fall through. So, as of the other week, he was still unemployed. It's coming up on three months. And he acknowledged it's been a fight of faith not to get anxious as he's waiting on God to provide for himself and his family. That's understandable. Nobody's going to throw a rock at him for that. And then he said something that just seemed to fit this eternal perspective. He said, you know, we could possibly lose our house or our car, but that's nothing compared to what awaits us. Now, he didn't know I was going to preach on this. But that's where his mind was going. We, we can't pay the mortgage, <laughs> so we might lose our house. And it keeps going like this. Apparently they have car payments, so <laughs> we might have to at least get an old clunker instead of the car we have. But compared to what awaits us, this eternal glory of being with God forever... Compared to that, well, Paul would say it's not worthy to be compared. Don't talk about it in the same breath. These trials, temporary trials and eternal weight of glory. Or here's how John Newton wrote to a friend who had his share of trials. John Newton is, of course, the author of Amazing Grace. Oh, the peace which flows from believing that all events in which we are concerned are under his disposal, that the hairs of our head are all numbered, that there is a need be if we are in heaviness, and that all things shall surely work for our good. How happy to have such views of his sovereignty, wisdom, love, and faithfulness as will enable us to meet every dispensation with submission and to look through the changes of the present life to that unchangeable inheritance to which the Lord is leading us when all evil shall cease and where joy shall be perfect and eternal. Sounds like Newton was reading 1 Peter. There's a need be for the heaviness, but there's an inheritance coming where there's eternal joy. And that's what brings peace. Well, as we close, these verses are intended for those who are in God's family. And so it'd be worth stopping and asking, are you sure they apply to you? Do you know you have that kind of relationship with God? And if the Holy Spirit is convicting that you don't, first recognize your biggest problem is a broken relationship with God. Whatever other problems you have in your life is nothing compared to having a broken relationship with God. Nothing else compares to the severity of that. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your sins have made a separation 
between you and your God. So our sins are, as, as Dale even mentioned in his announcement, that, that we fall short of what God requires of us in thought, word, and deed. We do what's wrong in his sight. We fail to do what's right in his sight. We're guilty before him. And that is a breaking of a relationship. We need to realize that any suffering that we experience in this life doesn't compare to the everlasting suffering we deserve to experience if this relationship is not restored in our lifetime. And I thought of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where it says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. That's awful. There's nothing in this lifetime that's as awful as that. And we cannot fix this problem. We don't have the ability to make things right. Romans 8 says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Not neutral, not favorable, hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there's nothing we're going to be able to do that's going to impress God or get some favor from God. Anything we do in the flesh that is apart from the spirit, still fallen nature, is is nothing. We can't do it. It's impossible. So the only one who can make things right is Jesus. He's the only one who can bring guilty people and a holy God together. That's a mediator. And 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. It's the only way to bring God and man together. The only way to bridge that separation that's been caused by sin. The only way our sin could be forgiven was through his death on the cross. He took our sins and the judgment it deserved on himself as a substitute. And then he rose again to show he had accomplished everything necessary to rescue us and restore us to God. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over because of our transgressions. That's why Jesus died. It was because of our sins. And he was raised because of our justification. In other words, our justification, our being declared right in God's sight, was settled. And so Jesus was raised to show it's done. The work has been completed. There's nothing left to do than trust him. So Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you that you have made the way of salvation through Jesus. You didn't owe us a rescue. You could have left us all perish in our sins and we could not plead that you had done us wrong. There would be no injustice with you for punishing us for our sins. But in your great mercy, you punished Jesus for our sins instead. You gave us his righteousness as a free gift we could never earn or deserve. You offered all as a gift of grace. And so I pray for anyone who's never received that gift, that even today you would work in their hearts, that they would cry out to Jesus to save them. He is the only one who can. 
And Lord, if we have trusted Christ, I pray that we trust him through whatever trials we're going through now or will in the future. Lord, he is worthy of our trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close with Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus.